Hello everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. As per my nature, I aim to disappoint BJ by not having an intro this episode, but we do have exciting content for you in finishing off part three of our exploration of Station Eleven, this time exploring two of the most remaining and fascinating characters, as well as the world-building themes and overall philosophy of the novel. As per usual, and until further notice, I am Spencer, and with me are, B- with me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I am eagerly awaiting... Uh to hear what you will become after further notice when you are not Spencer anymore. I like to leave the audience in suspense. It adds a certain degree of drama to the the material. But sometime, at some point, we need some sort of uh, resolution to to the Spencer, uh, I don't know, I guess transformation? You know, (laughs) like, are you going to build a cocoon or something? So we'll, we'll see what it is. We've not directly proposed a degree of metamorphosis required for this process to occur. We'll leave it open. Maybe we'll do, a, maybe we'll do an audience vote before we're done. <laughs> but reasonable. in terms of actual material, as I said, we're finishing off Station Eleven. Going through what will probably be the most uh, interesting or complex aspects of this book now before we finish. But before we start off, continuing our usual run... Sarah, you have a new drink for us, I believe. I do have a new drink, and it is, uh, as I warned you all earlier today, it is a very boozy drink, and um, I really like it. So we are in for Ooh. a ride tonight. Two weeks in a row, you like the drink you've I made. Think the yes, would I be actually disappointed. With me liking the drink or not liking the drink? I don't know. It depends on the profit, but <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so I have a new drink, and it is, shockingly enough, not a gin-based um, <laughs> It is called the pa- uh, the Last Flight, which that is I thought was appropriate, yes, given our sort of Severn City Airport exp- um, of last week and our discussion, uh, particularly of the quarantined airplane that really mm-hmm. did make its own last flight. Mm-hmm. So this drink is equal parts bourbon, chartreuse, Aperol, and lemon juice. That is an alchemical concoction. Interesting. It's a very pretty sort of coral color and um, has a little bit of tang to it. And it's absolutely... Hmm. If you had to guess the proof of it, what would you say? I don't know, but I've had two and a half of them. Um, and I'm going to fall over after we're done. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing probably like 25 oh, to 30-ish, depending yeah, on like the whiskey probably. that went into it. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, you know, as... Uh, your your husband Lee probably very much did not like the barrel proof uh, maker's mark that that I sent him for whiskey on the weekend. <laughs> he might have given you that, and that would be a slightly different cocktail. No, I don't. I don't trust um, the leftover like unmarked whiskey bottles that are floating around this household at this point. Uh, so I went out and bought some Basil Hayden. Sniff it and and find out. It's fine. <laughs> I've, this is supposed to be close. like a, a you know a, a scarcity society where you know you find a, a bottle of of unmarked liquor and that is a prized possession now that you've you know ransacked a house. Well, and you mm-hmm. can also to sort of get liquor from other people on a barter system if you have something that they want. And I happen to have cash and <laughs> traded it for a bottle of bourbon. Seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. No. no. Now, me, who I try to keep very much in the theme with our books, I leave alcohol in this room just kind of sitting around the various aspects of it, including just resting on the bed, so that when I come in here, I feel like I'm scavenging new materials before my, for, for the episode we're doing. <laughs> well, so. I will say that we are going to have a whole host of cocktails to be drinking when whoever of you is here that is going to be here at New Year's, because I have... 
given all of the sort of liqueurs and interesting weird things I've had to buy for these, these cocktails, like my bar is currently threatening to just fall through the floor. Well, well that'll it, be an exciting, maybe we'll have like an, a, a bonus content podcast where it's the, uh, uh, whiskey on the weekend meets Mangum reads and the, the leftover <laughs> alcohol from like all of the other things that we've done that we get to try and finish in like a day or something. Yeah, it's the use it up marathon. Uh, Sarah, as you know, my only two requirements for if I'm going to be exposed to new various intoxicating elements is either a couch to pass out on or various books to fold for like six hours. If you can arrange for those two things, I'm golden. I've got both of those. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, so let's take our own last flight into Station Eleven. Yep, indeed. Uh, where do and we want to start? Just in, well, just since you proposed being fully intoxicated before we're done, do you want to start with one star Amazon reviews now? I do. Um, so I have, as per our last episode, I am starting to do our sort of outrageous one star Amazon review, um, particularly of books that I like. So I have once again two kind of strains of these reviews. Um, one of them I think will feed, I hope, a little bit into our conversation today. Um, but the other one is one that I just want to point out because I find it interesting and sort of maddening, hmm. is the several one-star reviews I have read on Amazon that then say, I loved this book. Oh God, the ones that <laughs> misclick. <laughs> or that don't really understand the rating system. I'm not sure. This might be a sort of old people Facebook kind of thing going on. I'm not really sure what's happening. One star. It's number one. <laughs> I loved this book. Uh, so I just wanted to bring, yes. So here I have, I have found uh, one that I had looked at earlier today. It was one star. And then the, the actual review was loved this book. Couldn't stop thinking about it. Even after I finished it, they say that loss makes you appreciate what you have. Since Region 11, I don't take the conveniences and luxuries of my life for granted. Um, so this is also a sort of like vacuous review um, that is not doing it correctly either. So, so maybe the one star was on of the review itself. <laughs> that's, that's pretty meta. Um, Clever point, PJ. Pretty, pretty meta and actually sort of leads into the other review that I want to talk about that I think will get us into some of the kind of world building um, and especially one thing that I want to get your collective take on, which is the kind of inclusion of some of the plot of graphic novel Station Eleven within the novel Station Eleven. Um, so we have a one star review from someone named Julie who has said, this is a sad state of affairs. I feel as though the author had a story that the publisher said would not sell unless it, unless it was post-apocalyptic. I bought it because it was recommended and I kept saying 10 more pages, perhaps it will turn around. The plots are disjointed, the characters are all victims. This is classic 21st century navel gazing. That's a very weird genre to have a 21st century <laughs> navel gazing uh appellation too i feel like also i'd like it is only 2019 can we really say classic 21st century anything really yeah well i feel like if it was a chicken soup for the something something sure that's already classic and probably partially 20th century because spencer's probably madly looking up on wikipedia and is going to tell me that the first book came out in like 94 um (laughs) can you hear me type but um i feel like the the sort of live laugh love kind of i feel like that's a sort of 90s thing 
Live, laugh, love. Uh, chicken soup for the something, something. Oh soul. yeah, v- very possible. But but I feel like that's sort of like the navel gazing that that I feel like this person is talking about. But you know. Well, and so I feel like they're really talking about sort of like postmodernism writ large, which is why I sort of tie it to this inclusion of the graphic novel within yeah. the novel itself, right? This sort of genre bending or disj- at least certainly the disjointed narrative in some way. Um, I would like to point out though that this sort of like weird statement she makes at the beginning of this that Emily St. John or is it Emily St. John Mandel um had a story that the publisher would not sell unless it was post-apocalyptic like I get that there are a lot of people in these reviews saying like this isn't really put po- like this is not post-apocalyptic fiction as I expect it or know it or whatever mm-hmm. but the story relies on it being post-apocalyptic like you can't just right. say now, the, the entire point of this is the end of civilization and the rebuilding it up through various people. That's a necessary element for the story. It's pretty intrinsic, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's woven in pretty tightly. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's not explored or the focus as much as a lot of post-apocalyptic works are, but it's a necessary part of the setting function. Yeah. So, anyway, that is what I would like. That is the outrageous one-star review I would like to take our, as our starting point um, to think about 21st century, cl- excuse me, classic 21st century navel gazing. I don't know what that even really means. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you could say about anything you wanted to to offer a mild offhand criticism about it. Yeah, I don't know. I think Jonathan Franzen is classic 21st century navel gazing. I'm not sure why we're applying that label here. Maybe she was in a, you know, 200 level literature course of some sort and needed to write something. <laughs> On an Amazon review? <laughs> Oh man, what a modern world we're in. I'd like you to do your homework by posting an Amazon review. Please bring it back to me on Monday. Oh man, I feel like I might have assigned that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) BJ, in answer to your question, um, Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment, which is apparently a NASDAQ-traded company, founded in 1993, with Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul coming out in 1997. So it's more late 20th century navel-gazing, I think, now. That... I, I feel like I'm vindicated in the like random guess that I have of when it started, but also I don't understand how the company started so much before the first book. Uh, it wasn't the oh, first. Okay. They apparently started coming out with books in 93, but that one was their, just their major bestseller that I've ever uh, heard okay. of. Yeah, because everybody didn't, like all of the ants in the world didn't know what to buy their nieces oh, and nephews God. and bought chicken soup for the teenage soul. Mm-hmm. This is a teenager. I read about this on the New York Times. Uh, sure. Christmas. <laughs> it has teenager in the title. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, well. Yeah. Speaking of teenagers. Would you like to start with Kirsten? Um, I, I think that that's what we had discussed because Miranda really does lead into everything else. Station yeah. 11. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Kirsten begins this story as a young actress on the stage in Toronto in terms of playing one of the young daughters of King Lear in a very unique production of the show. Uh, She apparently, if I remember this correctly, has had a pretty extensive acting career for a girl who's about Mm -hmm. Mm seven-ish, of where she's appeared in commercials, she views herself as an actress, she's very much being marketed at her parents in this role. And as part of being part of this production, she has begun to bond with the lead, you know, on the billing actor Arthur. Yep. Um, she kind of mm-hmm. had the um, opposite experience of uh, Sarah from uh, Land Before Time. Oh, that is actually a painful record. <laughs> it took me a second to get, actually. <laughs> For those that don't know, Guppy. Uh, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, oh God. Uh, 
for our audience that's not unaware, this is a Joy Land before time. The child actors that played Guppy were murdered. Painful story. So, well, going from there, because this story goes in much happier directions. Surprisingly. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, the, the end of the world is much better than that, um, which is reasonable. At least for Kirsten, it is. Um, well, should we, should we discuss the bit, the general plot for where Kirsten goes and then go into greater detail from there about what she represents? Sure. Yeah, so, you know, we catch up, we see her in these early scenes um, in the King Lear production, sort of just being a kid, having this bond with, um, with Arthur. But then we catch up with her about 15 to 20 years later. After mm-hmm. after the apocalypse, after the plague. Mm-hmm. And we catch up with her when she is part of the Traveling Sim, really one of the main actors in the Traveling Sim. Yeah. Contrary to so many other books that would be on this topic or kind of in this setting, her past throughout this period is almost purposefully not explained because the character does not think it's important mm-hmm. and does not want to talk about it. And a lot of it so, she actually legitimately does not remember. Right. Particularly the first year, mm-hmm. which is the focus of so much post-apocalyptic work. That when she was roaming south uh, from Toronto with her brother, she has no memory of that. She has no memory of how she acquired what is a relatively disfiguring injury. Um, she has very little memory of, of any any way of where they eventually ended up. She has only vague memories of what exactly happened to her brother, other than he just kind of died of disease. And really, all that really matters to her is what she is doing in the present and what she is striving towards. Um, one of those main things being the last probably fan in the world of Arthur. Yeah. Yes, this is one of the the only clear, and it's not even clear that it's actually a memory, but it is this sort of like um, almost muscle memory, this sort of like send, right. sense that she is connected to this man in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's the kind of memory that we often have from childhood of where she no longer really remember. She no longer has the original memory. Mm-hmm. She's built something out of the concept of it. The remembering of remembering. Yeah. And has made it one of her key things that motivates her is just continuing this project of putting together. It's almost like she knows she doesn't remember and so she wants to put together all the pieces that she can of something that she's aware was very important to her, even if she's not really clear how anymore. Yeah. And... and- I- Oh, sorry. Go ahead, BJ. I was going to say, like, I think that this is, like, she has a major memory of the last time things were normal, and that's associated Mm -hmm. with Arthur. Mm Mm-hmm. It it makes for a very interesting point of contrast in her character, because we see her very much representing the the mindset in this book that the past does not matter. Everything that happened before the apocalypse is irrelevant. It's all something that's practically just fading away into myth. I don't even want to talk about it in an interview, discuss those things about the past or how I've come to the present. But one of the main things she builds her character around is keeping this kind of scrapbook of memories of this person that she has this vague concept of, of a play she was in when she was seven. Mm-hmm. Provides a certain degree of uh, conflict in her character that she's built around this philosophy of the present, what matters, what we're doing with the future, but she's still very much pursuing these, these memories of the past. Mm-hmm. Sarah, what were you going to say? Um, well, I was really just going to say that, like... Among the, I would say that among the main characters that we meet post-apocalypse, they all have Mm -hmm. these kinds of things that they hang on to or remember from the life before, right? Sure. Um, Clark is a little bit different because he certainly has things that he remembers from the life before, but he makes his life um, post-apocalypse kind of becoming a communal memory for people or becoming a site of communal memory for people. But, you know, within the Traveling Symphony, we have a couple of different characters who actively talk about the the obsessions that they have of the time Mm -hmm. before. 
Um, and so sometimes it's, um, oh, it's the one guy who always is looking for TV guides. Um, right. And like the trash magazines. Collects. And yeah, and, and the trash like magazines yeah, yeah. And, and blah, blah, blah. And so everybody kind of has this thing. And some people it's a little more, it's a little less of a kind of physical collecting object or that kind of obsessive, repetitive behavior, but it is um, this specific, oh, muscle memory of hitting a light switch and lights actually coming. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We we get that kind of moment. And, and Kirsten, or Kristen, Kirsten? Kirsten. Kirsten. It's K-I. Okay, so Kirsten. Yeah. Um, she has specifically, as you were saying, Spencer, she has specifically built her character around this lack of memory. And she has this thing, but I think that she really also kind of tries to hide it or undercut it or turn it into something else, at least for the outside world, because so much of who she is is built on this lack of it, it, it seems like this is something that she really only reveals to August, her one really close friend, the one that's also collecting the TV guys. That's something that they have had to share because they are the best friends in the world, and these are the kind of things that they have to know about each other. But no one else knows about this. No one else is really told about it. It's more, the two of them love to raid houses, and so it's something that they've now been explored to together because she's going into each of these houses trying to find these things while he looks for TV guides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do we? A, a question I had when I was kind of pondering this is that is her kind of rejection of the past and memory except for this one thing a kind of coping mechanism that she legitimately cannot remember that first year she has only she was a child when she was going through this she lost her brother in the early years is abandoning the past a way that she's able to go forward a way that she's able to function because of the trauma and the loss associated with so it? if i feel like if you want to go with the navel gazing one star review you say that <laughs> it's the perfect way that you never have to talk about what happened immediately post-apocalypse that we don't get mm -hmm. from gfin mm -hmm. essentially like we don't have mm -hmm. to deal with the first year or two when things were chaotic and before they settled down and stuff like that because we just sort of say well the character that we're going to focus on doesn't remember it and so it's fine yeah um, mm -hmm. i would say that this is an actual exploration of how memory and trauma work. Yeah, I, I think that's a much more reasonable way of looking at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that this sort of, this loss of memory is a psychological and to some degree sort of physical coping mechanism mm -hmm. to continue moving on. Um, that we see a couple of people in these sort of immediate post-apocalyptic scenarios who have not been given the opportunity for, to forget, cannot forget, whatever, and it ends disastrously for them. Mm -hmm. But even those that are able to successfully cope with it, to forget what they need to and move forward how they need to, as you said, they still keep their touchstones. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even the traveling symphony itself is existing. They talk about how that they don't make new material. They don't come up with new plays because no one wants those. Mm -hmm. They want the specifically really old classics that come from Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah, they've tried the new material, or they've tried newer material, not just new material, Right, and nobody wants it. Um, yeah. The other thing that we know about Kirsten when we pick up back, pick back up with her at in the Traveling Symphony is that, um, and this is never really discussed either, is that she has two knife tattoos on her wrist um, that she refuses to talk about, and those are in this sort of post-apocalyptic traveling, trying to to survive scenario, those are tattoos that you get when you have killed someone. Those are very much apparently recognized symbols. Yes. Because other people have very similar marks on them. Mm -hmm. So it's a degree of advertising to have those kind of things. But as you said, 
it's as much as she is a very dangerous person throughout the story they talk about how she's incredibly lethal with her knives and is trained to be such as much as like any member of the traveling symphony she's probably had to fight and kill in the past long before the story and continues to do so several times over the course of this book it's still something that we never hear her not only not discuss other characters but never even ponder internally this is something that has been very much buried and banished away like so much of the rest of her past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there are two sides to that, at least for me. I think one of it is um, Emily St. John Mandel's decision to not deal with the uh, essentially bloodshed and chaos that is part and parcel of post-apocalyptic novels. And like mm-hmm. we get a brief glimpse at one point that basically dashes the the plot that you know people might have grasped at but that was that's essentially the only time that we see the expected um violent exactly that that you would see and and so many of uh you know literature and movies and and sort of all of the the media that has post-apocalyptic narratives and this is just much more of a cultural discussion of you know what happens to the culture what happens mm-hmm. to, you know, what is your day-to-day living life and what is the culture like after this happens? And I think mm-hmm. it's like an acknowledgement that this exists, but this isn't what defines the post-apocalyptic world and it's not worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. In her, her mind, the violence occurs. It, I mean, it happens to a massive degree off camera. It happens in this book, but it's very much, it's, 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 um, it's almost just token. It's just something that occurs. She's much more interested in terms of what continues to motivate us in this world of broken violence or in this world of loss and increasingly fading memory. What is both humanity and as individuals keeps us going on. That's much more fascinating to her. The violence is a necessary background of that kind of world, but it doesn't seem to give, give her, uh, intrigue her as much as the, the uh, actual story does. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the purpose of setting it 15 to 20 years, uh, the most of this right. 15 to 20 years after, um, after the plague comes, because although there is, of course, still danger to be had on the road and in these small communities, um, the acute violence of the immediate post-apocalyptic years is over and she is interested in this kind of routinized daily life and what that mm-hmm. looks like it's kind of like a hitchcock hitchcock version of yeah. a post-apocalyptic story where all of the violence is off screen and it's terrible mm-hmm. and you sort of get whiffs of it and like you sort of know what's happening and you know mm-hmm. there are a couple of scenes where you get a lot more of that sense of it and one scene where you really see it but pretty much all of the other time it's an external threat that is terrible because you don't see it yeah right and it's often for a lot of the characters like the traveling symphony it's an inherent part of who they are now that they survived this violence the travel symphony is a paranoid organization that has very strict rules for how they go about their operations mm-hmm. because they lived and developed and started in that world but from where we see them now, a lot of their paranoia, a lot of their very rote procedures are getting increasingly archaic because of the increased stability that's entering into this world. We even see it from Kirsten when she's talking about her friend August, of where she's legitimately shocked near the end of the story when she realizes that when we see him commit an act of necessary violence and kill another character, that it's the first time he's ever had to hurt another person. Mm-hmm. That This is a world of where a person can grow up now once again and not have to commit violence as part of their regular course of a day. 
And that surprises her. Yeah. It's not the world she grew up in, but it's very much the world that we're already in. And we, we kind of get a sense of that, although it's not stated directly, but I think that it's kind of mirrored in this conversation that we talked about a little bit in the last episode about what do we need to teach our children now, Mm -hmm. right? And so we get it in terms of, we get it explicitly in this book in terms of the sort of, do they need to know a pre-apocalyptic history because nobody has the reference points to know that you could connect to the internet or that planes flew or whatever. Um, But I think that you can extrapolate out into that, into the relative peace of this world now, although it is certainly not complete, nor is it ideal, you know, do we need this sort of hard-edged, militarized... I mean, Kirsten has been militarized. The Traveling Very Symphony so. has been militarized. They happen to be doing this other thing, um, but this knowledge of self-defense um, and violence and aggress- aggression is is necessary, mm-hmm. or at least it was when they formed. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like how we talked about, that the violence is an inherent and necessary part of the world, but it's a means to an end for them. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to travel the world. They want to be able to still engage in art. They want to do more than just survive. But the only way that was possible was being as dangerous as anybody else that was roaming the wasteland. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. back to Kristen. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to ask that it seems to me that the two closest relationships she seems to have with other characters over the course of this book, other than Arthur, which is a whole thing sure, unto yeah, itself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but in her immediate life would be, I think you'd say, August and Savid, mm-hmm. which, uh, of where she you know, interacts with the people like Gil or uh, Annabelle or varieties of other people that are in the Traveling Symphony. But those seem to be the two that she's closest with in most time. Mm-hmm. Um, one being her best friend beyond all things, that kind of friendship where they've actually kind of discussed the fact that they're only ever going to be friends because that just means so much to them. Whereas Savid is a prior boyfriend that... Uh, she seemed rather close with. They directly play opposite each other whenever they're performing Midsummer Night's Dream, of where she plays Titania and he plays Oberon. And yet she cheated on him. And she's not really sure why. It just seemed like an act of boredom in the past. But they have to continue operating and working together in the future because of the nature of how the Traveling Symphony works. Um, what do you guys think about these relationships or uh, what they mean to Kirsten? I, I don't know. I, I guess I feel like this is sort of one of the times that I'd rather just gloss over it because it's kind of like, Fine. I feel like it, it doesn't add much. I mean, like, it, I guess mm-hmm. it sort of says like everything's kind of normal because this is like what happened before. But the other side of it is just like, it's such an insane thing to do in essentially a small militia, <laughs> guerrilla militia. And it's like, I mean, I guess maybe they're you, to that point, but. What, you mean cheating on Savi? Yeah. Or forming a, like, legitimate romantic relationship with him in the first place. Mm -hmm. One or the other. I mean, (laughs) and and to an extent, both. But, like, I don't know. Either it's serious enough that, like, everybody's okay with it. And then, I mean, I guess, like, she could have slept with somebody in some town. um, Because I don't remember, like, I don't remember any details about it. But this is sort of one of those things where I was just like, this is not important to my enjoyment of the story. So, (laughs) well, it was all, I think very sketchily glossed over. I think, I think I mostly, I think I mostly agree with you, BJ. Um, I will say that the way, the way that this kind of struck me, especially when they are kind of talking about the weird, like dancing around each other that happens Mm -hmm. in the traveling and when they're in different towns and and all of that. (laughs) 
Um, Even literal dancing. Yeah, on right. Stage. <laughs> it the the main impact that it had for me was that it was kind of illustrative of the ways that small tight knit groups function essentially the same no matter under mm-hmm. what circumstances they have been yeah um, I, but i feel like that's that's a weird like i don't know maybe most of my groups of friends are are the odd people out because we're all a little bit weird but like something vaguely like this happened in one of my friends group friend groups and that person was fairly quickly ostracized once like once it came to light and hmm. like no one ever talks about this guy anymore and basically anytime his name comes up the immediate response is oh fuck him um so i mean that's that's interesting and i'm that's perfectly fair i think (laughs) my my experience with these types of experiences in these types of groups is that it has been a little more fluid and a little bit more of everybody around the situation situation saying hey everybody just get along um probably very midwestern and not particularly helpful but i was gonna say this happened everyone's mental health in the situation i I don't know what to tell you sarah um (laughs) can't we all just be friends (laughs) well i mean i've got two kind of mindsets on it for one i think it paints further color to what i a an extended list I really enjoyed of where they go through the various dramas that are happening within this group yes. that they all want to be together. They all, well, I'll rephrase. They all want to do what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they all want to, they all want the traveling company to continue to exist. They were part of it. But the nature of people being in this kind of club, having these relationships, having these drama, is that they all have these grudges that have just festered. Mm-hmm. That they've all got these kind of little issues that have just become noxious things that don't prevent them from being friends or at least coworkers, but are still there and are still affecting all of them in different unique ways. I feel like that's 100% and, real. Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, particularly in this kind of world of where there's not many people left. There's certainly not many organizations like this. If they weren't here, they would not be doing this or anything resembling yeah. it. So they don't really have an effective choice in the matter. That if someone fucks up, you don't leave them. You don't leave this organization no matter how much they've hurt you. Because this is the only world in the future you can imagine. Mm-hmm. It's just something else you add to the ledger of things that annoy you. Mm-hmm. The other thing that strikes me about it with respect to Savid and a few other things with Kirsten is that it really paints a picture of her being, I don't know if this is just because she cares so little about her past, but she comes across to me as being kind of capricious of where, since she has so few groundings in her past and cares so little for the history, since she's so very much focused on the individual moment, the individual experiences that she's doing, she comes across as not being really necessarily dedicated to anything other than maybe the traveling symphony, but more necessarily what they want to do, for, what they can do for her, what this can continue to do for her. It's really not to the end of the story that we see her being exposed to something that's enough to shock her as being aware that something else matters. That there is something outside of this immediate circumstance I've chosen myself that is relevant. And I feel like her so casual cheating on Savid, a co-worker, a friend, a key part of this organization, this kind of bleeds into, if you've got somebody that has just no concept of the past, has no concept of her character, doesn't even want to ever think about it, it leads to them not really having much in the way of stability. And I don't think she really ever finds that at the course of this novel, other than maybe in this lodestone token she built about Arthur and her close friendship with August. So I guess that leads me to a question that I have for both of you, which is how a lot of the traveling symphonies referred to. And do you think that's sort of much more of a reflection of Kirsten? Do you think that it was 
Emily St. John Mandel didn't feel like coming up with more names um, or, or, you know, some other explanation, but there's just like, you know, the second flute is, you know, mm-hmm. she's a floozy and yep. is kind of difficult and I just don't want to deal with her. And the first trombone is an asshole. And the tube, the tube is a family man with his daughter. The conductor is the conductor. Right. Um, where do you think that kind of comes from? Because presumably, obviously, in an organization like this, everybody's going to know everybody else's name and like pretty much everything about them by this point. But we don't get so many names. We don't get a lot about them other than vague impressions and where they sit in the symphony. And even more mm-hmm. so, like, it's not the bit parts that they have in, in the Shakespeare that they play. It's the symphony, which doesn't even take, like, the main stage mm-hmm. compared to the plays that they put on. So I think that there are two things. I think there are two things going on with that. Mm-hmm. Um, What's up? One, I think, is a sort of practical writerly thing where you have Spencer over here, who is an excellent reader, who already has memento style notes going on of characters and names and what's going on. And like, you really can't overload them with more of them when they're not like specifically impactful to what little plot there is. Um, But I think the other thing for me is that I think that... Emily St. John Mandel was trying more or less successfully because I do think that there's some kind of bleeding of genres and what she wants to do here. But I think that she was trying to create this traveling symphony in the mind of the reader and in the the sort of world of the text as a somewhat mythical thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so by only ascribing real names to a couple of key characters that we actually have to know throughout the story, she is creating or preserving some of this mythos around what the Traveling Symphony is, as if we as readers are potentially members of some town in the Great Lakes region that they are passing through, where we would only know them by their position in the symphony. Mm-hmm. So, um, Edwardsville? <laughs> Edwardsville? <laughs> That's my hometown. <laughs> One of the things that makes it hard to assess is that since this book is told so much from the perspective of characters, that I feel like even when the narrator is narrating, it's still doing so from what the perspective of the character would have. Mm-hmm. That we only really ever kind of get this the traveling symphony from Kirsten's perspective, so we don't necessarily know whether this is just her thoughts and who these people are, or whether it's how they view themselves. Yeah. But we see with other people that they there is an element of abandonment of names in this world and assuming of identities. We see mm-hmm. it in terms of Tyler as the prophet that. Mm-hmm. Oh, People as part of this kind of broken world have assumed labels as part of yeah. it reinventing themselves or focusing on who they want to be. And that's part of our own history, too. I mean, you look at last names around the world. We've got plenty of people named Smith, Weaver, Carver, Carpenter uh, as part of jobs being a key part of who you were in a, in a world of where that was all you really could do and all you really could ever build your life around. So maybe there's an element of now that we've been civilization, so much the complexity has been reduced, people are reinventing themselves around the role they want to be and maybe even identifying themselves in the role. But it's really hard to say when we never get to see through the minds of the characters to see whether First Tuba just calls himself First Tuba, which would be <laughs> fascinating if that was how he... Hi, honey, how you home? Oh, doing great. Oh, I love you, First Tuba. Moi. So can we call you Spencer Almanac? If you'd like to call me Spencer Almanac, we can go forward with that. <laughs> 
Um, but that's a really interesting question. I really hadn't thought about it, the idea of what does this, is this just merely a, a character viewing other individuals in terms of the roles, or is, is it actually representing how these people mm -hmm. have been yeah. I yeah, it's a. Yeah, I mean, well, I was just gonna say it's a it's a great question, BJ, and I think that your 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 point, Spencer, is really well taken about like is this potentially just a lar a, a sort of larger indication of the loss of selfhood that happens in this world, where like our traditional markers of personality, which are frequently extrinsic to ourselves, have been lost. Mm. It's notable too that a lot of the people that keep their with the exception of, of, of August, um, several people that keep their original names, including the Travel Symphony, like Peter or Gill, are distinctly older. Mm -hmm. That uh, other people like, you know, the first, the second, the second flute or first flute, I can't even remember, <laughs> or uh, Viola or various other people. Viola is an example of where we distinctly have it even said that she had a name, mm -hmm. she joined the Traveling Symphony, and then she became Viola. That it was part of almost her christening of joining this organization that she abandoned who she was and she became her instrument mm -hmm. because that was what she wanted to be. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I'd have to go through these characters and I don't make this too many characters on my little memento notes to go through, but it seems like it's, it seems more common in individuals who are younger with the notable exception of the conductor who, we, for the conductor, we see her a lot, but other than the fact that she was military, mm -hmm. that she came from military base and she was formerly leading a marching band, that's kind of all we really get. Yeah. And you could potentially sort of see that, like, well, she was primed to take on this role anyway, <laughs> coming from a military sort of organization right. that is specifically meant to kind of quash selfhood in in favor right. of um, a yeah. collective unit. So she is the main so character of a Heinlein novel that never got published. And <laughs> everybody else's perspective yeah. is like an interview of the minor characters that were taken along on this journey. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of characters in this book that are very secondary that would be the major character of different works. And the conductor is high up on that list. Yeah. It, it's fun to think about even her role is that most of the people in the... A significant portion of the Traveling Symphony, at least the oldest members, are former soldiers under her command. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they're still viewing her in that mentality, they may not have ever called her by name in decades. Um. So we have, at various other points in our discussion of Station Eleven, talked about Kirsten's interactions with the prophet and then her subsequent interactions with Clark. Mm -hmm. um, what yeah. do we need to say more about her specific plot? I mean, I think we kind of have to rep start presenting Station Eleven because it's mm -hmm. kind of going to be the focus of everything going forward. Yes. BJ, I want you to talk about Station Eleven, <laughs> given how much it disappointed you. So, I, like, I, I don't know... Well, uh, so there are a couple of things that, that I wanted from this book and that I didn't get. And I think the biggest one was I wanted to know more about Station Eleven because in terms of uh, plot and descriptive scenery and mm -hmm. um, sort of all of the things that I guess I come to expect from many works of fiction, the mm -hmm. places that they existed were when... Station Eleven was at the forefront. And so mm -hmm. the highly descriptive nature of, you know, what the uh, drawing that Miranda Carroll is doing or, you know, the difficulty between different characters and we get teased with that and then nothing happens. And mm -hmm. I guess um, the... So what Station Eleven apparently is is a, is a you know, a couple uh, issue graphic novel that we're not mm -hmm. 
I guess we're not really sure how long it is, but it's definitely more than like two or three ish, uh, issues or, or uh, books. Um, well, I think hmm. it's unclear to me, and this is maybe a, a question that I have, it's unclear to me if it really is more than two or three issues, or if we just get so many descriptions of Miranda writing and rewriting and drawing and redrawing that it is just new iterations of essentially the same. The reason that I thought it was more is I think we get some, like I was looking for other issues of station. Like people are looking for other issues of station 11 in this post-apocalyptic world. And it's like, well, Mm -hmm. you could be looking for copies, but to me, what makes the most sense is that you're looking for, you know, pieces of the story that you no longer have for whatever reason oh interesting okay i so i understood those kinds of moments which really come from chris from kirsten Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. as she had hold of one of them that arthur gave the one arthur yeah Mm -hmm. um but she had no way of knowing that there weren't more of them so i i understood that and i could be totally wrong or maybe we just don't know i understood that as she was searching for um the sort of felt absence of more issues that those don't actually exist um but that she felt that they should based on the timing of it i mean when miranda gives arthur um she gives him like the first two editions Mm -hmm. of state of station 11 which are the first time that this has ever been effect, been produced and spent years, decades working on it. I kind of picked up, and this is happening while he's in the play. This is right mm-hmm. before the apocalypse happens. This is when he give, uh, Arthur gives Kirsten one, a, a copy. I think it's, he just gives her the first edition, right? Or does he give her both? I think he gives her okay, the like, first. And I guess, so my yeah. idea was Miranda had finally finished it mm-hmm. and self-published because, you know, she's at a point where you know, throwing money at her pet project doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. see it that way. I don't think I don't think this is something she ever really intended to publish. I mean, she even talks about that, you oh, know, what would you do? I, I guess I yeah. never, I didn't mean publish as in, like, widely Not sent to a publisher, but, but yeah, yeah, produce. Exactly. That's more possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I still interpreted it that she had made two, and it could be years more before she did any more, because Station Eleven, to her in particular, is not a fixed thing. It is her life, and it is her perspectives on her life as she's doing it. I don't think she even fully realizes that at first until she sees how much of the story becoming a mirror of her own life and shifting as she does. Then when she first started writing this, um, the hero of Station Eleven, whose name completely escapes Dr. me right 11. now. Thank you. <laughs> I, would, I would not have remembered that at all. Yeah. Spaceman Spiff. Who, what's going yeah. on? Sure. <laughs> um, that he very much is the hero of the start. He's the focus, mm-hmm. and that these... Individuals who live in the darkness, who've rejected, um, who want to go back to Earth, who want to return to everything else, are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. But as she gets deeper into the story in the process of writing over the course of years, she finds that she now no longer connects to him because she's no longer in the point of her life where he means what's did. That she now, having lost much of what she invested for, having this kind of nostalgia been into her, even if she's relatively content with her life, she's much more connecting with these, uh, again, it is... P- been a while since you read this book, and man, there wasn't much detail about Station Eleven. But what were the individuals who'd rejected Doctor Eleven's authority call? You want to have that written down? Nope. I, I don't know. Are they the ones that were riding the seahorses? That so. oh yeah, I remember the seahorses now. Um, so I guess I feel like before we delve too deep into <laughs> Station Eleven, even though I, I sure this is 
this was my focus for for a long period of time because I really wanted <laughs> some Station Eleven. I how, feel like we should talk how happy would you... a little bit about Miranda, sure. who she was, because uh, because I think it's really important mm-hmm. because yeah. I think that there are many parallel uh, stories within this book. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so and so much of what Miranda does, despite the fact she never she barely meets Kirsten for like a couple minutes at the play directly influence uh, Kirsten's life even years in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, through Station Eleven, through this one bauble that she has of the past that Arthur gave to her. That so much of what she assumes was what Arthur meant to her is really actually coming from Miranda. Mm-hmm. She just never got a chance to really know her meaning. Yeah. Yeah. But Miranda, is we know her as the first, uh, wife. Uh, first wife of Arthur, uh, is about 15 years his junior, but grew up on the same island. Well, Wikipedia says of... 11, Spencer, and I'm disappointed in your spirals. <laughs> BJ, I rely on you for humility in so many ways. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and that she is. Oh, mm-hmm. I was gonna. I was just gonna say, like, she is one of the characters from whom we really get Arthur's story as yeah. well. Yeah. We we have talked um, in both of our previous episodes, I think, about kind of how we never are in Arthur's consciousness, but we mm-hmm. we get we sort of triangulate him from a couple of different places. And except at the bitter end. Yep. Except and at the bitter end. Yes. Right. Well. Um, but Miranda is one of those. Essentially, Miranda and Clark are the two main yeah. views that we get of Arthur, and to a certain extent, we get their stories as well. But they're they're the main viewpoints on Arthur. Yes. And they're... so when when Miranda and when Miranda and Arthur meet and sort of court and fall in love, um, Miranda is. Essentially, um, a, a would we say failed art student? Um, Pretty much. Who is dating a quote unquote sort of serious artist? Uh, uh, the starving <laughs> artist motif. Yes, who has like sold one painting for a substantial yeah. amount of money and can't sell anything else. And so she is temping as a secretary for some company. I don't really shipping know what company? they do. Yeah, some mm-hmm. sort of like vague shipping company. Conglomerate of some sort. Yeah. That mm-hmm. Presumably, she really deals. Have a lot of work to do but yeah <laughs> likes being but in the office really... because it's much less messy than being with her stupid abuse abusive a- asshole artist boyfriend um and she feels useful yeah. she feels like she's contributing something mm-hmm. even if she doesn't have much to do or know what her role is she's we see how, how much pride she has and that she's doing this yeah. and how much it's increasingly separating her and distancing her from the mindset of being with her artist boyfriend yeah. it also significantly sort of does a room of one's own thing and gives her a mm-hmm. clean and uncomplicated space to create. Mm-hmm. And this is when we start, see her start to create Station Eleven, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which she kind of shows to her artist boyfriend and he really don't get it. That he does not understand what, what draws her into it or what purpose it has. Mm-hmm. And is otherwise just kind of utterly dismissive of her in all, in all sense of the word. Um, in the course of her going into this job she's connected with author based on the fact that she is the daughter of a friend of his was that was that the connection yeah or the daughter of somebody that he knew from back on the island older so that's the thing that i want to bring up is like so they're from this remote canadian yeah island. i mean i was so i guess it's like this sort of garden of eden-esque island where you know there's mm. everything it's a hippie commune exactly um but we have a couple of different stories of like people coming out of a past meeting and it sparking something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and 
we have that play out a couple of different times. And so one of the times is uh, Miranda and Arthur meeting up and then, you know, having their yeah, uh, falling in love, getting married, and, and that sort of sparks um, the next one, which is the uh, Arthur's son, the prophet, who then meets up with Kirsten and er- sort of everybody meeting up with Clark. So there's sort of this like splitting off from any earlier time and meeting back up and sort of the the twists of the various characters that happen between there and how different their their starting point is from their second meeting essentially mm-hmm. um one yeah. of the things you know, I, just... I was gonna say and you know i feel like it's that miranda does like complete 180 going from this hippie commune to be essentially becoming like a corporate facilitator you know whatever she does in her shipping conglomerate that she seems to be at least like middle to high up maybe in the c-suite area of things when when we see her like essentially publishing her own versions of station 11 and uh, flying to all sorts of remote islands and, you know, in to see Arthur and things like that. Uh, what is her maxim that she says to herself every morning? I didn't write it down, but it struck me as interesting. Do you guys have that? What she repeats in the mirror to herself? Oh, I don't remember. Look this up. But yeah. Yeah, one of the things I find interesting about her, and I honestly find that her periods when she's living with Arthur, when she's in Hollywood, really tragic and sad mm-hmm. more so than so much of the rest of the arcs in this book where we see you know death destruction whatever else but the author does such a great job of making of depicting how profoundly alone she is yeah. that she's gotten what she wanted she's gotten the escape from the artist she has everything that she could desire in terms of resources time to dedicate to her art but she is so profoundly unhappy because she is absolutely isolated from anyone else around her. She is such a stranger in this world. She is so utterly foreign to those who are operating in author's circles that she can never establish a connection. The closest we see her to, you know, making a human connection, because she really can't with Arthur anymore, and she's starting to realize this, is for a brief moment with Clark, because mm-hmm. he's as much of an outsider as she is. But the author does a really good job throughout these chapters of making me feel really bad for another character. So I think the other thing that comes along with her isolation is the uh, loss of self that Arthur has Mm. because he essentially stops being a person and starts being a caricature and that's sort of the rest of his life is the caricature of a a movie star that then sort of Mm -hmm. like falls out of grace and then you know decides that he wants to play around in the theater and does sort of his thing and and he's meeting people out in public essentially just for the exposure which you know we talked about last episode and that's just such a weird thing to do and such a i don't have a self anymore i don't have Mm -hmm. something that is disparate from the public view of me yeah, we actually do get sort of some of that interiority from Arthur when he and Miranda first meet for dinner and he is like really legitimately concerned for her, her trying to protect her, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you're right, kind of over the course of their relationship specifically, Arthur loses that inner life at least in in sort of our eyes as kind of a a reader that is not allowed into um, his consciousness in any ways. And so I think 
my reading is that that specifically happened kind of over the course of his relationship with Miranda. Is that in some way, do you read that as some way tied to Miranda? Or is that a sort of inevitable thing that was going to happen to Arthur anyway, and Miranda happened to be there as a bystander? I think she was kind of chained through, chained to him as he descended down this path. I was going to say, I think a little bit of both, because she's not an L.A. socialite, and she is from the island that he grew up on, it it serves as a stark contrast to everybody else that he's interacting with. And so mm-hmm. I think that probably both drove him in many ways to become the caricature of an L.A. socialite and, you know, the movie star role and things like that. And she was sort of, like, hooked onto his train at that point because of their early meeting. And I think that's sort of the story that gets retold throughout this book. We kind of see the cavilling nature of Arthur in terms of um, his uncertainty about what he wants out of life reflected in the in the wives that he picks over the course of this book. Of where, at the stage of his life of when he latches on to Miranda, he's very much grounded in nostalgia of thinking back to the island that they came from, trying to find a connection to the life that he lost. By the time that uh, we see the end of his and Miranda's relationship at that horrible dinner party, he's gravitated towards Elizabeth, who is very much Hollywood, who is very much the ephemeral blending in with everyone's starlet that everyone just gravitates towards. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't hear much about his third wife to know what she might represent or whatever else, but by the end of the book, he's now put Elizabeth in the role as the mother figure, and he's trying to build up a relationship with his son again. He's going to go be with them so that they can be a family and be connected whatever else. But it all just reflects that he never was really certain what he wants or what he wants to be or what purpose he wants to have out of life. And it's just trying to trying to find a new one with the people he's choosing to be with and abandoning the other ones with those uh, as he's abandoning that kind of hope for a life. And I think that's essentially the the what, what this book is about is, hmm. you know, Kirsten goes through that, Clark goes through that, um jeevan goes through that like everybody goes through the, like this is what i you know i thought i wanted to do or, or whatever else and then they end up in a point where it's like okay i've found my place in life and mm-hmm. i think towards the end arthur I, sort of finds his place in life eh, he finds a hope for it though we don't know if it's going to be any more futile you know, than the thankfully last. he and died he... before we could find out but <laughs> it went ill <laughs> Uh, one, one thing to tie into that is I didn't find in the book what Miranda says to herself is that every morning when she wakes up she looks herself in the mirror and whispers I regret nothing which was real interesting to me because I didn't necessarily understand what the author was trying to say by it I wasn't sure if I should interpret it as a kind of a conscious rejection of introspection or more of a just a determination to live with such intensity and purpose that she's not going to have any regrets um, how do you guys make do you guys make any sense of that or ponder what it meant I was, um, so I, I feel like I want to go first, Sarah, because you have yeah, something actual useful to add. And I just want to, <laughs> oh God. to have an that's, aside. That's a projection. I'm not sure that I have anything useful to add, but go ahead, BJ. <laughs> um, but, and it'll give you time to sip on your lovely cocktail. Okay. Um, mm. It just, for whatever reason, reminded me of uh, nothing is true, all is permitted. Um, hmm. As like a refrain to... Maybe not excuse sort of whatever you wanted to do, but kind of. Um, it's like, I regret nothing, so I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to, you know, sell out to corporate shipping and uh, go that. Did, did, this, 
Did Assassin's Creed invent that, or did they steal that from somewhere else? Uh, I think it was a uh, stealing from actual Assassin's Creeds. Um, but oh, okay, fine. Um, I'm not a hundred percent on that. But but anyway, so so that's sort of like what I got out of it. And so again, a useless aside that's mostly just a Spencer. <laughs> so I apologize to to our listeners and and to you, Sarah. I'm referencing a video <laughs> game that. Um, we've sort of, I think, discussed on this podcast in the past that is fine. Um, but but that doesn't look like anything to me. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> now we're going Westworld. Fine. Okay. Continue, Sarah. Well, I um, I read it. I think I think that you're the both of those valences that you mentioned, Spencer, are there. I I read it, and this is probably an indication of how much I just liked Miranda. Um, yeah. I read it as a sort of self-affirmation of, I don't regret, I have nothing to regret in the choices that I have made, particularly mm-hmm. regarding whoever the boyfriend was, Arthur, um, and kind of her decisions after that to live a life that allows her to do what she wants to do um, mm-hmm. and allows her to do that self-sufficiently and independently. And so I think... In my reading, it is this sort of rejection of the kind of needing of other people and that she has cast that off and regre- and does not regret, has to, I'm sorry, has to remind herself to not regret having done that. Right. And uh, she's not. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I think she kind of speaks for most of the characters' perspectives that we get. Mm-hmm. That yeah, we are living in a world of people who have to tell themselves that they do not regret what has happened in the past. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Miranda uh, dies in the plague on an island. <laughs> she, she <laughs> okay, let's go there now. Uh, Just you know, you could not have said that better. She does. <laughs> okay, uh, she. Gets back into, prof- into the shipping industry once she and Arthur break apart. She becomes a very senior executive. She travels the world very much alone, and she's aware that that's not necessarily what she wanted, but as you said, she's very much in the life she's picked. As part of this, having seen Arthur having dropped off her finally finished Station Eleven, she goes from there to, I think it's Singapore, or at least somewhere around there, of where we hear as part of the vague backstory of this book that a kind of global economic collapse has occurred, and like... A very significant portion of the shipping fleet of the world is just docked off Singapore. And so she's going to go check on that, as most of these ships are still in full crew and operation, but just doing nothing until further notice. And while she's there, the world effectively ends. Yeah. She is one of those that's, well, infected along with everybody else. She seems like she survives a bit longer than most do, but she's able to make it out to a beach to kind of observe these ships that she thinks, kind of humored to herself, that people might still be alive aboard and might be safe, isolate they are. Mm-hmm. And kind of mirroring... Did you guys get that her death was kind of mirroring Arthur's? Because we don't, we don't see many people die in this story, at least not from their perspective, but we do see the two of them go out mm-hmm. and have these kind of very much profound moments of peace of just what... This book is very purposely sparse and laconic um, in terms of describing how things go out, grounded around the concept of memory being a base of storytelling. But when characters like Miranda and Arthur die, it's described in vivid detail, as they author really wants you to get a concept of what their last memory, their last thought is, or even just their last image. But as she sits on this beach, dying, looking out over these ships and their lights in the dark and seeing the dawn in the morning, it paints a very 
beautiful moment for her as she exits the world. But it seems to mirror in some ways what Arthur goes through too, is when he dies, his last thought is just the snow, the artificial snow that's falling, how beautiful. Um, so I found that an interesting linking between two characters that could not have been more divorced than they ended up being. Yeah, and I guess they also sort of have the two perspective of the slate wiped clean and uh, spirit of humanity overcoming. <laughs> I feel like Miranda would have had more hope to uh, live and survive and prosper in this new world than Arthur ever did, but she did not get a chance for it. Yeah, um, and I and I'm a terrible person, but I feel like Emily uh, St. John Mandel at some point like heard or read about the you know container ships that sort of wander and do nothing while you know trade <laughs> disputes happen or something like that and it's like oh that would be oh, a great thing to have for yeah my yeah. post-apocalyptic novel um but yeah but, that is a sort of like interesting a specific example to to choose of of like collateral damage right yeah like mm-hmm. a, a very uh based in reality vignette to have to give people a touchstone mm-hmm. well for Touchstones here, two of the most important ones of Kirsten are Station Eleven and this little bauble that originally with that the ball the, the this little um, cloud filled bauble glass paperweight <laughs> originally came from Clark, who for some reason bought it for Arthur, which was then taken by Miranda when she was divorcing Arthur and taken that night in particular, and then was returned to Arthur not the day that they were together but later, mm-hmm. which she, she like mailed it to him. And then he just gives to Kirsten without a second of thought. But between that and Station Eleven, these are two of the only things that she's remembering or trying to remember about the old world to connect back to it. Mm-hmm. And they both came direct from Miranda. Yep. Um, are we at a point where we could talk about what Station Eleven is now, PJ? Are you content with enough background? <laughs> um, yeah, I I feel like, but sta- well, Station Eleven is just sort of described as a completely different world where. Um, there's a space station that's shaped like a plan and it's, you know, post first contact. And, you know, there's a whole backstory with aliens landing on the planet and the, uh, difficulties that they have in communicating with people Mm -hmm. and how they want to deal with people and how Dr. Eleven wants to deal with it. And, and a whole summary of a story that sounds like I, that Sarah assigned me. A, a homework that I had to write a, a good and detailed Amazon review of Station oh Eleven uh, graphic novel, and I didn't want to do it. And that's what we get out of Emily St. John's Mandel's description of what Station Eleven is. And it's just like, well, the artwork was really interesting, and there were really cool scenes, and, you know, in some of them we have... Dr. Eleven, you know, coming out of, you know, this and that scene, it's very evocative, um, but, you know, in terms of fitting to the rest of the plot, and, and I essentially take, you know, hundreds of pages of, you know, very detailed graphic novels, sum them up into a paragraph and be like, well, this is my review, you know, can I get a B <laughs> out of this? Um, uh, C plus, BJ. Okay. C fair, plus. fair enough. Oh, she's, a t- she's a tough grader. Um, so, and I guess my, so my question to you both, because I honestly don't know, um, mm-hmm. is that, so Station Eleven kind of as an object in this world is clearly doing something, right? The the existence of Station Eleven forms a 
sort of point of plot contact between a variety of different characters, right? It establishes mm-hmm. a connection between Kirsten and Arthur and Miranda and Clark um, yeah. Clark and Tyler. Specific, and mm-hmm. I'm specifically thinking of sort of Kirsten and Tyler and their connection through Station Eleven. Does... Is there anything about this sort of like C plus Amazon review description mm-hmm. of the plot of what is actually going on in Station Eleven that is in some way like what is it what is it doing? So I think my gut reaction is it has the uh, effect of sort of holding up you know what art's supposed to do is you know sort of hold up a, a mirror to uh, our our culture. And say, this is what we thought would be our sort of post-apocalyptic, our you know, the major event that happens to humanity, and the the character that deals with it, and how hilariously far off it is from <laughs> the actual end to society, and how mundane hmm. the end to society is, and how mundane our reaction is to it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, instead of this sort of glorious bang or solution or fancy, whatever. S- yeah. like space station where this doctor can, you know, try and deal with the, you know, maybe invading aliens. Like, I, mm-hmm. you know, I guess we don't get enough background, but, you know, in reality, a bunch of people died. You know, there's a little bit of strife for like five, ten years, but on the whole, everything sort of continued in a really boring way and you know mm-hmm. eventually it'll mm-hmm. probably get back to normal in you know 100 or 200 years and and there aren't any heroes and there aren't any villains per se other than tyler and and as a villain he's very boring you know he yeah. peaked for uh you know two years maybe he is not the big boss yeah no. um but there's no big boss like that that no. i i feel like that's sort of the point there's no big mm-hmm. boss there's there, there isn't that story. There isn't that cool thing that everybody wants to read. There's, there's life that happens, you know, 15 years after a bad flu epidemic. Yeah. It, it's an interesting point you make because Station Eleven is grounded in so much sci-fi pulp of where the story of the apocalypse, the story of some plucky adventures that go off their own and escape it. They get away from it. They leave the scenario of what, left, what, what, what the rest of humanity, if humanity even exists, is enduring. Um, the the Miranda seemed to be aware of some of the pro, of the common tropes of that. It was even subverting some as she wrote it that the world that they've escaped on is broken. It is constantly in shadow. It's barely functioning. But it's I agree with you, BJ, that Station Eleven seems to be almost pointedly in contrast to what the actual focus of this story is about. This story isn't about you know individuals who left the rest of humanity behind and are trying to rebuild something else on their own. It's about humanity itself, what has survived, and what they're building from the ashes. It's about those who didn't leave, who didn't flee. It's about those who remained, and what they've now done among the ruins of the world to try to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual plot of Station Eleven, and I mean this, the story within the story, Station Eleven. <laughs> the, the lack uh, of but plot... It's, Story. It's true about Station Eleven too. With, with within the, with the story that has a lack of plot within the yeah. story. God, wheels within wheels. Um, I, I I'm looking at my notes just about what I wrote about the graphic novel, and I, my entry is just Station Eleven graphic novel. What? And then I crossed out what and wrote why question mark, and that's all. that's what I got. So, but, and I and I sniped and, your question, Spencer. You did, and, and I feel like I want to tie this in 
as as tight as maybe we've ever tied anything, which is uh, Emily St. John Mandel essentially identifies with Miranda. She wrote herself into yeah. the book yes. sort of mostly as Miranda. Mm-hmm. And so to have the the book that doesn't really have a plot and the author that wrote that write herself into the book as the author that writes a graphic novel <laughs> that we never actually get to see the plot. It's it's uh it's TV guides all the way down. Yeah. Yeah. And and it it is I I agree fundamentally with your interpretation. It was the one theory I was going to offer here in a second. You damn sniping bastards! My notes, <laughs> um, but it does. It, I mean, it does seem to strike you that Station Eleven. Okay, the graphic novel Station Eleven within the novel Station Eleven, and probably the novel Station Eleven too, were very much intended to be works of love that maybe weren't ever intended to be released to anybody else. That the Station Eleven graphic novel is very much a very honest. A true portrayal of a woman's life and a woman's perspectives on the world and what she wanted out of it. Mm-hmm. That it's so personal, it's so revealing of where she was at various moments, that it feels like you're reading somebody else's journal. It feels like you've just discovered their private notes over the course of their life and you're flipping through it in a way that almost feels violating. I don't think she ever would have intended anyone other than maybe Arthur to see this. I think she felt like that Arthur deserved to see it for how much he supported her, the one redeeming fact of his character, that he gave her the motivation, he gave her the support, he gave her the resources to make this a reality. It took years afterwards, but she's brought it about because he helped her at the beginning. And um, if we believe... I mean, I agree with you, BJ. I think Miranda is a stand-in for Emily, uh, Emily St. John Mandel. Um, uh, she, she literally said that, you know, that's the character that she most identifies with. So, yeah. Okay, well, that makes sense. Um, then I feel like Station Eleven, the graphic novel, is in many ways a commentary on this book as well. That it isn't that the plot doesn't necessarily matter. It is a very personal work to me, and I'm giving you an insight into it because you, as my reader, have helped me make this possible. That's an interesting interpretation for what it could represent. So, Sarah. Yes. Um, for for our interpretation of the novel, what what kind of marks are we getting? Um. Feel free, feel free to grade us in. I, I feel like this might might be like a, a perfect, uh, you know, an ending segment to, to a lot of our books where, where you can give us <laughs> oh, grades. I can, oh, can I give you grades? Can this be a new If you'd a like new to give bit, us grades. I will sir. give you grades. We're not grading the book. <laughs> I'm grading you. Um, you know, I feel like I we think... need to get you, you know, cocktails. <laughs> yeah. this, this segment needs to be at least four drink minimum. <laughs> um. You know, I this is a book that I would like reach in a weird high theory postmodernism class, um, which would be would be designed to make you feel bad about yourself. And um, <laughs> did you teach those? <laughs> but at the uh, at the end of it, I would give everyone good grades because this is a fucking shit show. Um, so you know, B plus for everybody. I'll take that. <laughs> really, Spencer, you're gonna well, take that? All right. I've I, I've been conditioned by law school now, where the B plus is the best thing you can ever hope for. So yeah, B plus is great. Um, well, is there anything else we'd like to discuss? I mean, this has been a really fun exploration of some themes that none of us know the damn answer to, but you know, are fun to ponder. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so unlike um, my girlfriend, I did have a surprising appreciation for for this book and i am getting mm-hmm. a variety of middle fingers right now just so you know <laughs> um, hey Bree. yeah um the peanut gallery is weighing in so 
Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of most books that I've chosen, this is very different from it, and I really appreciate it yeah. for for that reason. That it was it's sort of like um, a slice of life rather than the the normal book that that has that is much more plot and character driven. Yeah, I was gonna say kind of during some of our earlier conversation and the the way that we're all talking about how this book focuses on description and daily life and and the kind of everyday dayness of it it feels a little like anthropological mm-hmm. it, it's interesting too because because my mom now listens to this podcast i'm getting mom reviews of the books as we go through them as well <laughs> um but she had a really interesting comment on this one of course she read she actually read this before we did she read it when it first came out mm. and she said that i enjoyed it at the time but i really shouldn't have read it alone that oh, it that I feel like it was a book that I immediately need to talk with someone else to understand it and appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And you guys doing it three years later is not work for me. <laughs> so Fair enough. Um, but uh, that was an interesting comment. I agree. That if I just purely read this by myself, I would have enjoyed it. I would have found it very unique. But it has been such a pleasure to discuss it with you guys because I feel like I've gotten such a much more interesting exploration of what this book stands for yeah well i I, have appreciated you all reading it (laughs) under my suggestion because i read it alone and didn't have anyone to talk to about it um so i've been saving it up for three years as well so (laughs) (laughs) you read this when it first came out too i did oh wow yeah, I, this is this is a book that is meant for a for a that kind of close net weird little postmodernist course you talked about, mm-hmm. or a book club like this. Sure. It really works well in talking about it with other people, mm-hmm. where we can impose our well, you guys need to read this for for my entertainment, <laughs> um, which was our our last story. So yeah, all good mm-hmm. times. So what is our next story, BJ? Um, we actually have two that we're doing, and we are. Uh, bowing to the season and having a little bit of a Halloween theme, uh, a couple of short stories. Um, I, I'm not sure if you were supposed to sound scary, but you sounded kind of weirdly excited. I was, um, I was happy. I, I really enjoy the horror genre, and it's not been something we've addressed too much in this podcast yet. Okay, um, maybe that's we'll have because to... I hate it. <laughs> Do a little bit more of it. Um, so I think our next two stories are going to be, um, a previous, I think it was Hugo Award winner, but it might've been Nebula and I can never keep those straight. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers. Um, and then I think after that we'll do the Yellow Wallpaper. Um, and then maybe we'll have another short story or two or maybe full length novel and, and we'll figure it out from there. But those, I think, are going to be our foray into the uh, more horror genre. And maybe we can get get a little bit more uh, from Spencer every so often. So we'll see. <laughs> I have suggestions and we will explore. I, I mean, I have a suggestion for horror for you if you'd really like Spencer. We could do Bridge to Terabithia. Okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> when I say horror... I don't mean things that attack my sense of self. We'll just leave those for their own unique psychological exploration later. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, so yeah, I think those both will be fun. Um, it, it's it's like a, you ever heard the Mel Brooks definition of comedy? Uh, pain and time. No, it was that uh, tragedy is I cut my finger. Comedy is I watch you fall into an open sewer and die. I've got a similar concept to horror. I don't want it to be on me, but I'm great reading about other people. Gotcha. <laughs> 
Um, so all right, well, we have that to look forward yep. to. So we, <laughs> <laughs> we have Spencer glorying in other people's um, uh, distress, demise, and and other dismemberment. Um, and if I'm our lawyer, if our readers want? would like to glory in our distrust, dismi- demise, and various <laughs> dismemberment. Where can they go? Um, they can go to mangumtalks.com and for, for a lot of um, disillusionment and uh, dispelling of their their deep-seated desires, they can uh, listen to Pottering Around, our <laughs> podcast, uh, mm-hmm. sort of within a podcast, um, that, that we release every Muggle Monday. Um, there's also Whiskey on the Weekend, um, Mangum Talks TV, and a variety of podcasts that sometimes see the light of day when the uh, you know Jupiter is in alignment with Mars, uh, such as <laughs> Mangum Laughs and Mangum. Hey, you guys came out with an episode not that long ago, right? Uh, yes, we did, um, and that was one of the first ones that I think we both thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and it is a very much throwback to very classic uh, and very good stand-up. Um, and mm-hmm. so if you guys have, uh, our listeners have any questions, comments, or suggestions, there's the Contact Us button in the upper right-hand corner, and you're more than welcome to uh, contact us. And if it has to do with various drugs or um, website uh, things that, that we can improve, uh, that probably will be marked as spam. But everything else, we do welcome and do read. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, looking forward to next week. we got an interesting itinerary before us. And, uh, yeah, the pleasure to talk with you all again here soon. It's fun as always. Happy night, guys.